Please remain standing as you're able out of respect for the word of God through Luke. Someone in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Then he said to them, Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down the barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with those who store up things for themselves, but are not rich toward God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Be seated, please. The next few Sundays, Mark and I will be preaching uh, messages that come from a wonderful new book called When the Game is Over, It All Goes Back in the Box by John Ortberg. And in the book, he retells this parable in a modern day era. He tells about a man who lives in Silicon Valley and his business is fairly successful and he works hard at it and he works very hard such that he ignores his family and his friends for the most part. But one day, working so hard and uh, those 40-hour weeks that he enjoyed so much, he would work them twice every week. His wife tried to get him to slow down, and he said to her, you know, I will as soon as things settle down, but, but not right now. She tried to encourage him to take care of himself and to be attentive to key relationships. And he said, as soon as, they, as things settle down. But one day, his business manager came to him and said, we have a wonderful opportunity The wave is beginning to crest, and I think we can ride it. I think we can capture the market if we'll just make some changes and overhaul our company so that we can uh, deliver uh, this product more efficiently. And he said, it'll involve some more work on everybody's part, but we can do it. And if we do it, we'll be set the rest of our lives. Well, it sounded good to him, so he said, let's do it. And they began to revamp their company, and his hours became even longer. His wife complained, but again to no avail, because this time he told her, look, things are going to settle down, and then we can move to the Bahamas or Florida, wherever we want, and we'll be set for the rest of our lives. One night, about 11 o'clock, he was working still on his computer, trying to, to make some changes so that they would catch this wave, which they were beginning to catch. And his wife called him to come to bed, but he said, I'm not finished, a few more minutes. She went on to sleep, a little frustrated again. But she woke up about 3 in the morning and felt on the pillow next to her and he wasn't there. So she got up and she went and there he was at the computer, slumped over the computer. And she thought, just like a child that will play so hard with a toy, they'll just fall asleep while they're playing. And she went to gently nudge him to bring him back to bed. Only he was cold. He was dead. Well, they had quite a funeral for him. People wrote about him. Wall Street Journal wrote about him. Business Week wrote about him. They used words such as innovator, market leader. And at his funeral, which he would have loved if he only had been alive and he could have heard it, they used his very favorite word. They pronounced him a great success. God was silent during this funeral. When it was over a few days later, in the cool of the evening, an angel made her way through the graveyard came to the tombstone of this innovator, this market leader, this great success, 
and from the dirt on the ground surrounding the grave, wrote God's judgment on his life, writing on his tombstone this word, fool, fool. What makes a person a fool? How does one get to be a fool? Well, this morning I'd like to talk with you a little bit about that so that our lives end up being uh, rendered as wise and not as foolish. My basic assumption this morning is this, that a fool is a person who acts out of life's uncertainties, that they pay great attention to uncertainties. They don't know how the crops are going to be next year, so they grab all that they can for this year. They begin to hoard. When life is uncertain, they grab and stockpile for themselves. Now, we all understand uncertainty. You watch the Dow Jones, and one day it's down 100, and then it's down 200, then it's up 330. We understand that sort of uncertainty. We look at the housing market. We watch how it is fluctuated. We see the price of oil and terrorism around the globe. We get uncertainty. We know what that's like. But when we begin to act out of that uncertainty and try in our own life to build our hedge against that uncertainty, that's when we begin to engage in behaviors that render us foolish The first behavior we see in this parable today is in the setting of the parable. And that is that when people are uncertain about things, they become very competitive. And so what happens is a guy becomes competitive with his brother. And he comes up to Jesus and he says, Teacher, I want you to tell my brother. And it's become, because of the uncertain times, brother against brother. Could become sister against sister. Sister against brother. Children against parent, it's possible. Have you ever watched the family after the patriarch dies as they scramble over what's left? You've seen the competition. You've seen people compete with one another. Competition most always renders us foolish. There's a wonderful story in the book Sibling Without Rivalry about uh, uh, the author and her two children. And one day, a cold day, she playfully tosses an ice cube toward one child. And the other child demands an ice cube be thrown at him. And then the first child demands that more ice cubes be thrown at her. And then the other one demands more ice cubes. And pretty soon both children are in pain. They're freezing and they're turning blue and they're demanding more. They become, in their competition, very foolish. Competition will often lead you and I to hoard things that really aren't all that good for us to begin with. And another foolish behavior that comes our way was seen when Jesus then gave this warning. And I tell you, he said, beware all forms of covetousness. Greed often renders us a fool. Greed, the, the desire to grab everything and keep it in our barn and keep it away from others. Greed often leads us to behaviors that are not only foolish, but they're destructive Elie Wiesel talks about being in a concentration camp in Nazi Germany, and one of the things the soldiers would do to taunt the prisoners when they were being transported by train is they would toss some breadcrumbs, just little pieces of bread among these prisoners and watch them dive in and fight over it. In one particular fight on a train, there are 15 men piled on top of each other for a piece of bread. As they unstack the pile later, at the bottom of the pile is an old man that has a hand on the piece of bread. And a young man, about 15 or so, has one hand on the bread and with the other hand is beating and strangling the older man for the bread. And the older man, says Vazel, looks at the younger man and says, My son, I was getting this bread for you. And the son kills the father over a piece of bread. 
Greed will do that to us. Greed will do that to us. It will turn us into very foolish people, making the most foolish of the choices. It will set us one against the other. And the end result of a foolish life is ultimately destruction. Ultimately, there's nothing left. And the people that are listening to this parable, they get that. Because they have all got to watch King Herod at work. King Herod, as I've told you before, was so wealthy that historians and scholars believe that King Herod was ten times wealthier in his day than Bill Gates is today. He employed almost the whole nation of Israel, had much more money than anybody in Rome and and the emperor. He had more than they had. But one day, he died. And he left it to four remaining crazy, inept children. And his nine palaces, they began to decay. And all of his money, it was wasted away. And those who watched the aftermath could all agree on this judgment of King Herod. That man was a fool. Well, if acting out of uncertainty causes us to be foolish, then what might cause us to act wisely? And my suggestion this morning is that a wise person actually acts out of three certainties that I'd like to share with you today. Here's the three certainties, and if you act out of these certainties, you'll act, I think, in wiser ways. The first one is this. A wise person is certain of God's provision. They understand that what they have in life comes not from what they do, but from what God gives them. Give us this day, they understand, our daily bread. They get that petition. Now, they know it doesn't excuse laziness. Jesus said, consider the birds of the air. They don't worry, and they make their nests. But they do have to go gather the sticks, and they do have to gather the leaves, and they do have to gather the worms for their children. But God provides it all as they work to gather it. And a wise person understands that our life is not what we make it. Our life is what we receive, what is given to us from God. It's out of the certainty of God's provision that a person becomes wise. Second thing is this. A wise person acts out of the second certainty, and the second certainty is this. We all die. Dr. Bernie Siegel puts it this way. He said, I hate to break it to you, but I've done the research. And in my research, I've discovered that everybody dies. Lovers, joggers, vegetarians, non-smokers, they all die. And he says, I say this to you so that some of you who get up at 5 in the morning and jog and eat only vegetables will every once in a while sleep late and occasionally eat an ice cream cone. We act as if it could never happen to us and the statistics remain consistent through the centuries, the mortality rate always hovering at 100%. We all die. The fool gathers all this and never asks this simple question, and then what? I'm going to build these barns, I'm going to stuff things in them, and then what? I'll tell you what, you die. And then what happens? John Artberg has a wonderful metaphor, I believe, for what happens. He talks about when he was growing up, he used to play Monopoly with his grandmother, And he loved it when they handed out the Monopoly money. He he loved the feel of it. He loved the look of it. He loved to organize it. He loved to count it. He never understood that the game was about using this money to acquire what his grandmother did. So while he was counting his money and stacking his money, his grandmother owned Park Place, and she owned Boardwalk, and she had hotels on them, and she had utilities and railroads, and she wiped him off the board. And when the game was over, she'd say to him, Now, Johnny, one day you're going to learn how to play this game, but consistently... She would beat him. Well, one day finally came because the little boy Steve moved in catty corner to John, and he liked to play Monopoly, and they started playing on a regular basis. 
And he said, I began then to make an all-out effort at acquisition. I began to understand the name of the game was to own as much as I could. He said, so I did. I became ruthless in acquiring things. And he said, and so one day I played my grandmother again. He said, my grandmother's a wonderful woman, a strong woman, a widow who raised three sons on her own. A proud woman, he said, but I remember the day I broke her. He said, it was at Marvin Gardens. He said, I had her. I had the woman who raised my father. I had her on her knees. She was beaten. She couldn't go anywhere. He said, it was the happiest day of my life. He said, but my grandmother wasn't through with me. When the game was over and I wanted to frame it or or bronze it, my grandmother took her apron and she began to wipe the board clean. And she said, Johnny, one more thing. When the game is over, it all goes back in the box. Utilities, hotels, park place, boardwalk, it all goes back in the box for somebody else to use next time. And he said, I realized that that's a metaphor for life. It all goes back in the box. You know, one day you're jogging and suddenly you clutch your chest and it all goes back in the box. One day in the doctor's office you get the diagnosis that you did not want and it all goes back in the box. One day you're driving on your side of the road, but the other people are also driving on your side of the road. And it all goes back in the box. Everything. Boardwalk. Park place. Hotels. Cars. All of it. It goes in the box. And somebody else will use it. And whose will it be? The wise person acts out of the certainty of death and of God's provision. But finally, there's one final certainty. A wise person knows that one day they're going to have to give an account to God of everything that God provided for them. What did you do with the time I gave you? What did you do with the children I gave you? What did you do with the talents I gave you? What did you do with the money I gave you? All of it will have to give an account one day. And a wise person lives in such a way that they can give a faithful accounting to God. They know that one day it all goes back in the box. Now, I'd like to help you be wise this morning, so let me give you two hints. These are two hints that I think really help you get on the path of generosity, which I think was once best expressed by a man in New Jersey who gave away during his lifetime $600 million to charitable causes. And they asked him, how could you do this? And he said this. He said, I learned early on in life that nobody can wear two pairs of shoes at one time. Spiritually, he decided not to become the equivalent or the metaphorical equivalent of Imelda Marcos, that he would not hoard, but that he would share. Now, how do you get there? Two simple things, I think. First is this. You need to decide for yourself that God owns your life and everything in it. You need to decide that God is the owner and is not you. Everything else you do in life will flow from that basic decision. I love the story that uh, Lisa uh, Rograt tells in her book called Death Warmed Over. And in the book, it's a collection of recipes of uh, things you can bring to people's uh, house after a funeral, but also stories of things that happen at funerals. And in one story, it's about a man who got his wish. He wanted to go home to die, and he was able to do so. So he's upstairs in his bedroom in the last hours of his life. And suddenly, he sat up. He smelled, he was pretty sure, chocolate chip cookies, his favorite. He thought, oh, if I could just have one more chocolate chip cookie. So he rolled out of the bed to the floor, slid down the stairs, 
crawled through the kitchen, began to raise his arm up to the counter where the cookies were, and suddenly, whack! His wife slapped him, and she said, Don't touch those. Those are for your funeral. John Ortberg suggests that the most important question any of us can ever ask in life is this. Who owns the cookies? Whose cookies are they? He thought they were his. But they weren't. Whose kids are these? Whose house is this? Whose money? Whose assets? Who owns these cookies? You move down the road toward generous when you get the right answer. The second thing is this. I think generous and wise people understand that Everything that they do in life is an investment. And they want to invest in things that don't disappear, barns that don't get pulled down. They want to invest in relationships, in people, in causes that are eternal. All of their life they see as an opportunity for wise investments. And they become generous. And they become wise. I'm reminded that uh, in the 4th century... When Rome became Christian after uh, Constantine's edict, that uh, people by scores were baptized. But when soldiers were baptized, they would go into the water and they would keep their right arm out of the water. That was their soldiering arm, their killing arm. And they said, God, you can have everything, but you cannot have this. Chesterton remarked some years ago that when Christians are baptized in the 20th and now 21st century, that they hold their right arm out of the water still. And in their arm... They hold this pocketbook, this wallet, and they say, God, you can have anything else, but you can't have this. I've had amazing opportunities in the last few years. Five years ago, I was at the uh, place where Artemis' temple, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, stood. But you know, if you look at it today, there's hardly any evidence that that temple was there. And then just a few weeks ago, I stood at the side of Herod's temple, which you could see from the Mediterranean Sea. You could see for miles around marble and, and, and laid with gold, overlaid with gold. And not one stone, as Jesus said, of Herod's temple is laid upon the other anymore. Now, if you want to know what Artemis' temple and Herod's temple look like today, you can still find out. You can go to the computer and find an artist's rendering. But they don't stand any longer. And I mention this because I believe the 21st century temple where most of us worship is right here. Sometimes made of leather. Sometimes made of other material. But in here we come and we offer our worship. And I just want all of us to be reminded that this temple will not stand any longer than did Herod's or Artemis's. One day it all goes back in the box.